You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we are joined by Judith Yusidi, who is the Vice President of Government Affairs for CASP, the Council of Autism Service Providers. Formerly a CPA, Judith transitioned into autism advocacy when her son Jack was diagnosed at age two. With over a decade of experience, she's been a driving force behind autism-related legislation in numerous states. Judith's accolades include the Margaret Bauman MD Award and the Autism Advocacy in Action Award. Today, we'll discuss profound autism, advocacy, and treatment considerations, spotlighting the impactful work of the Autism Science Foundation. Judith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I so appreciate this opportunity to talk about the work of Profound Autism Alliance and CASP and um, things that are going to make life better for people on the spectrum, hopefully, and their families and the providers who serve them. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, is that you got into the field of advocacy um, through through your son, but what sparked the the passion around the profound autism and the profound autism alliance? What drove you down that path? So um, my son, Jack, definitely inspired me at age two to get involved with autism advocacy and I was living in Texas at the time. I'm from Texas originally. And his services were denied um, because he had an autism diagnosis. So I got involved there with some advocates who'd been working to pass an autism insurance law in the state. Um, and we were successful in getting a bill passed in Texas. It was the third state in the country to pass an autism insurance law right on the heels of South Carolina, where Lori Unum was working. Um, And that was a life-changing experience for me. I definitely um, felt empowered and excited to see that a state like Texas could change things. Um, And particularly a state where people said, you know, this will never happen in a place like Texas. And that really helped fuel the the movement nationwide. Um, So to see those possibilities to see what was deemed impossible become possible. Um, I worked in states like Oklahoma and Georgia where legislators would shake their fingers at me and tell me to go home because it was just never gonna happen there. Um, But working with providers, with families, with self-advocates, with amazing legislators from both sides of the aisle, I learned you know, if you're positive, if you collaborate, and most importantly, if you don't give up, you can accomplish things, sometimes incrementally, but you just have to keep going. Um, So that was very motivated by my experience with my son, Jack. Jack is now 20 years old, so 18 years has passed. um, And he definitely falls into what's known as the profound autism category. What profound autism means, a lot of people kind of struggle with what it even is, and people start talking about IQ or adaptive skills or all these different criteria. Um, It's really for autistic people who always have and who always will need 24-7 care, 24-7 support. Um, So I always use the cup of sugar analogy, like 
I cannot leave my house and go next door to borrow a cup of sugar for my wonderful neighbor and leave Jack home alone. Um, even at 20 years old, even, you know, he's super funny, even though he has a great sense of direction and he is um, a great runner, he has many strengths, he definitely um, engages in dangerous behaviors. That means he needs 24 seven care. He always has, and he always will. So if that describes an autistic person that you know, whether they're a child or an adult, um, that's what profound autism means. And so living in that reality, particularly over the last few years as Jack's gotten older, he really has had some very challenging behaviors. Um, to be candid, one of the worst things he started doing um, was biting his tongue. And so he damaged his tongue so greatly, he has, was struggling to eat. He lost 20 pounds. Um, and these are the sorts of situations that are occurring a lot in the shadows with people who have profound autism. Providers are just, I mean, for lack of a better term, they're just freaked out. Like they don't, aren't, they aren't empowered to know how to serve this population. And it's not just behavioral providers, it's also medical professionals. We have been into the ER, we've been to GI, we've been to psychiatry, we've been through all the specialties and there was very little help to be found. So I was looking around and what I saw was a lot of toxicity, a lot of people fighting about terminology, a lot of people fighting about who had it worse in the autism space. And I didn't see a lot of the progress that we saw like, for example, with the insurance movement. So I sort of took what I'd learned from that um, and thought I want to implement that in the profound space. And so that's why we started Profound Autism Alliance. We're engaged in positive advocacy, progress, collaboration, and we're focusing on people with profound autism, not to take away from anyone else on the spectrum who also needs and deserves support, but to add to the conversation. So we founded it. My family started it as a private foundation this last year. Um, it's in the process of becoming a public charity. It's a 501c3. Um, and we've hit the ground running with advocacy and with research that we're funding right up front. And a conference is coming up too. So lots going on. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I love the perspective of that, though. It's the idea yeah. is that, you know, autism has always been seen on a spectrum, but autism mm -hmm. advocacy is on a spectrum as well. Yes. It's that there's so many pieces to it. And we did such a good job of advocating for early intervention a long time ago. Yeah. And yeah. movement was made. Yeah. Now we finally, over the last 10, 5, 10 years, have, be, have become a little bit more cognizant to make sure we're hearing the self-advocate voice. Yes, so important. And yes. this is the missing leg. It's okay, so who isn't being advocated for? And it's and it's that it's that missing piece that you're tackling right now. It's it's yeah. the profound autism. Those who might not be able to advocate for themselves rely on other caregivers to be a part of that advocate advocacy effort. Um, exactly. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a background is that this didn't just come to fruition because, you know, all of, all of a sudden there is a, an epiphany saying we need this. I mean, there was a report that, that came out in 2021. Yes. And maybe you can give us some background on that and how that yes. got us to where we are today. Yes. Yeah, so a few years ago, 
the Lancet Commission, um, were, they were looking at autism as a whole. So they weren't just looking at those who are more severely affected. They were looking at autism as a whole, all sorts of things related to autism. And they saw you know, that research and advocacy are occurring, but many things are moving at a very slow pace. Um, and many people on, across the spectrum are still really struggling. So they tried to identify some things they could do where they felt like they could really make a difference within five years. And so one of those things was to define profound autism. So they decided to coin and define that term, profound autism. And they have some specific terminology. They're chaired by a researcher named Catherine Lord from UCLA. Most people have probably heard of Kathy Lord. She chairs the DSM Committee on Autism Spectrum Disorder. Um, so she led the charge um, with the Lancet on the coining of the term profound autism. Um, and they talk about individuals who have um, intellectual disability of, with an IQ of less than 50, um, or those who are minimally or nonverbal, kind of falling into those categories is falling into um, the profound autism space. I actually talked with Dr. Lord about the way I describe profound autism, because I feel like talking about IQ and verbal and blah, 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 is a little overwhelming and people get really confused about what profound autism is. And she has given me her blessing to say, when I talk about it being 24 seven care across the lifespan, that's profound autism. Um, so they coined that term and they were quite surprised that there were a lot of autistic community members who didn't like the term. They felt like it was stigmatizing. Um, and so there was pushback from some and there was huge celebration from many who felt very validated that finally there was a way to describe this particular experience. Um, and so that kind of led to a lot of back and forth, um, but the Lancet definitely um, coining that term was groundbreaking. The other thing that happened after that was the Centers for Disease Control did research and they found that one in four people who are on the spectrum or 26.7% fall into the category of profound. So that's, you know, one in four, it's a big chunk of the population. Um, but what they also found and what other researchers found is they're not being included in research. There's not a lot of research going on about what their lifetime looks like, what their supports look like, ways to help them. And so there needs to be something happening to change that. Absolutely. And I mean, when I think of right now, the group that would be falling within the definition of profound autism is that there's so many barriers out there. I mean, there's barriers to accessing treatment, not just mm -hmm. because of the lack of providers, but there's the lack of education, the lack of knowledge and the lack of potential payment, because with a lot of people who are receiving care with profound autism, you're not seeing large treatment gains all the time. You're seeing maintaining or you're seeing quality of life improvements. Yes. Um, what are the biggest barriers that you're seeing right now? Because you're diving deep into this, right? You're, yeah. you're leading the charge. What are you seeing? Oh my gosh, it's so interesting you say that, Jeff. I was literally talking with a cast member yesterday who is wanting to serve um, her clients with profound autism who are over the age of seven, who are profound. 
And the health plan has just, I won't name the plan, but they've just come out and said, no, we don't do that. Absolutely not. They're falling in the too bad category. And so she and I had a conversation about that. First of all, the practice guidelines for applied behavior analysis right now are going through a revision. It's almost finished, the third edition. And one of the tenets in that third edition talks about maintenance as progress. So people who have profound autism, um, when you think of generally accepted standards of care for them, maintenance definitely can be progress and it's critical. Um, so ensuring that that is recognized um, in states so that they're required to follow generally accepted standards of care on the federal level with the autism care demonstration and with mental health parity, all those legislative tenants is so important and that can really make a difference. I'm bouncing around a little bit, but another conversation that's been occurring is around CPT codes. There are a couple of codes that are meant to serve people with really severe challenging behaviors, but a lot of providers will tell you it's just next to impossible to use them. We've been talking about trying to use modifiers or create modifiers that can really empower and validate treatment for those with profound autism. So those are real conversations that are occurring right now to try to specifically focus on what's needed for this population. It's it's really exciting. Uh, it, it sounds exciting. And it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily a unique process for the medical world is that they right. had to add these qualifiers for complexity of care for mm -hmm. a variety of different conditions. Yeah. Why would autism be, you know, excluded from that? And right. when you think about some of these things is that there, there are artificial barriers that are set up that keep providers from actually engaging in the practice mm -hmm. where it's needed. Um, is that is that one of the issues that you're running into is that you mentioned a lack of research, which obviously there is, yeah. because there aren't enough people invested in That's this right. care. And it's a very difficult population to include in research, right? So when you think about clinical research, so, you know, if you're sitting down watching Lester Holt on NBC News and he pops up and says, a new study on autism reports, blah, 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 fill in the blank. And if it's a study that included autistic participants, those are autistic participants who could very likely provide consent, who could fill out a survey, could you know, participate in different things they might need to do as part of the research. And so research has indicated that that sort of research, um, it used to be more inclusive of people who had what was known more as classic autism with the expansion of the spectrum. Now it's all scooted over, <coughs> excuse me, to those who can participate. Researchers, you know, it's, easier for them and there's more incentive for them to include people in their research who can provide consent, who can participate in different trials. Um, and those people are important, but their experiences are so different from people who have profound autism, who also, in order to have meaningful research that really applies to them, need to be included. So we've got to be innovative and figure out how to do that. And one way to do it is to require research that's funded through the National Institutes of Health, for example, to talk about who's included in their study. Like 
do they have profound autism? Um, they have to provide other information related to, you know, gender, race, things like that. So it would just be another box to check. But if we could start better tracking that, that's one step forward. And again, it's also, you know, it supports the argument or the position that profound autism is a needed term. It's a term that provides clarity. It's not about taking away, we still want research for everybody, but we definitely need to have research. So thinking about it from my selfish mom perspective, I need research for the tongue biters of the world. They're out there. We need to figure like what behavioral interventions can help them, what psychopharmacological interventions can help them, what needs to happen in that space. And right now, nothing is happening in that space or very little is. Um, one thing that's very exciting is the International Society for Autism Research, NSAR. Um, I have gone to NSAR the last couple of years. I think science is really boring. <laughs> I'm not into it. I never have liked it, but I've been to NSAR the last couple of years. I did go with my daughter, who's like a neuroscience major, so that helped, you know, she could explain things to me. Um, but what we found in attending the last couple of years is there's really nothing much going on at all related to profound autism. This coming year, they're actually having a section that focuses on profound autism, awesome. which is very, very exciting, just that they're acknowledging that. So I'm already seeing some progress um, and some excitement around the term in the research community. So hopefully that's a good sign. No, and I mean, when you put it into perspective of, you know, I want the research for what's happening for the tongue biters of the world. And yeah. I mean, but that that really is, if you take that concept and apply it across all the barriers, it's an easy one to kind of put into kind of at least a, a framework is mm -hmm. I might work with, um, and, and I'll talk about Jack, I might work with Jack for yes. nine months just on reducing that that mouthing of the biting of the tongue and the and the yeah. medical component that is. It's not showing a lot of gains across a lot of categories, right. but without that, I couldn't imagine what the setbacks would be for him, for you as a family, for his ability to be able to integrate in any other part of, of his life. Yeah. And yeah. it's that framework I think people forget about. It's it, it, I think there's a misconception about what treatment needs to bring about through yeah. the process. And you're right, Jeff, like in our advocacy, we focus a lot on early intervention, um, which is incredible and works. Like there has been research at a Boston Children's Hospital recently talking about how 37% of the kids that they diagnosed with autism don't have the diagnosis, don't meet the criteria when they're four, five or six years old. I think to me, that's a sign that the services that they're getting are working. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but there are those who are going to be affected in different ways who, like in Jack's case, you know, losing weight, unable to eat, you know, becoming more isolated, his health is at risk, his connection is at risk to the world around him. So um, I will tell you, I've been on the train with him, I've been on airplanes with him where he's biting his tongue and blood is pouring and people in the community kind of think that's weird and scary. So that kind of thing is really isolating. So I talk about that specifically, but there's pica, there's wandering, there's just many different things like that that affect the profound population 
um, that really need attention. And we're starting to see it now, um, which is very, very exciting. No, no, and I mean, just the concept of, of how you look at treatment, I would say the providers have not adapted completely to say, you know, when I have somebody who has a profound behavior and is identified as profound autism as far as where they fit on the spectrum, it's can I sit here on two, three goals and really develop a plan around those, support around those, understand how to be able to work through those versus feeling like I need to adapt to what a insurance carrier or a payer or somebody like that might be dictating to me. It's that it's that that push and pull, I think, is hard. And the training hasn't always been there. Is there an advocacy effort to reach out to the provider network to say, you know, let's build more training, let's get more continued education around this concept of how do we treat the whole spectrum rather than hyper-focus on just one group that benefits from care. Yeah, so I'm very proud of, there's a special interest group at CASP focusing on profound autism, um, trying to find ways to incentivize providers and empower providers too. I want to say, and I don't think providers hear this enough, I deeply appreciate those who are willing to risk their own safety in many situations um, to engage with people who are more profoundly affected. You know, it's it's hard work. And for those who really do it, they, you know, definitely they need to be safe. You know, they need to have um, best practice that they can implement. Um, so at CASP, we're working very hard on that. And also as part of the practice guidelines update, in writing the new version, updating the version of the practice guidelines, beginning to end, we're trying to make sure that what you read could apply to any age. We also want to make sure that the different severities um, are addressed because that's the reality of ABA provision um, to people across the spectrum. So those things are happening The research will empower it even more. One more thing I want to mention quickly is that there's federal legislation called the Autism Cares Act, which also funds all the autism research. So there's a big movement right now to make sure that profound autism is specifically referenced in that legislation so we can get some funding that's targeted as well. Um, You know, we need funds in order to do this work. And so Mm -hmm. that way providers can be empowered to do the work too. Yeah, and and empowering of the families is just as important. Um, You've done a lot of advocacy around this, which means that you've probably talked to uh, thousands and thousands of people about the issues that are going on. Um, What is that? Is is there a common feeling amongst families right now? You know, this this is where I'm at. This is where my family's at because we're not getting what we need. And this is yeah. what this is what that experience is. Yeah, I think many families quite honestly feel isolated. Um, I think they feel excluded from the community in many ways because you have to protect the dignity of your loved one who has profound autism, which is important, you know, but people understanding the experiences. I literally have a friend who her arm has been broken several times by her son, which that sounds terrible to say, but that's just a reality. But that's not something that she can go around and post on social media or talk about a lot because those severe challenging behaviors are real and scary 
but she's a human being, her experience matters. Her son's a human being, his experience matters. These people are living in isolation, disconnected with nowhere to go. So again, that's part of the reason we started Profound Autism Alliance. We have a top secret private group called Caregivers Connected. Um, that's only for caregivers. There's no providers. There's no one else in the group except for caregivers of people with profound autism. Um, and that's where we share. We have hundreds of members already. Um, people ask for advice, help each other out. Um, and it's a place where people can go to feel understood. And that the idea of isolation is it's a uh, it's powerful. I mean, I, to be in a situation where day in, day out, you're experiencing struggles that nobody really identifies with or has the ability to process because they haven't experienced it. Yeah. It's it, it makes you feel that pain even more so. Is what's the public awareness perspective to this? Are we are are you out there trying to help others realize that, you know, this is the experience of a lot of people and we have to take that into consideration when we're developing policy? Absolutely. So I've been going to Capitol Hill to talk about profound autism meeting with legislators. Um, and then we've been messaging on Profound Autism Alliance a lot about what the definition is, um, what the statistics look like, helping people just generally understand that one in four um, on the autism spectrum fall into that profound category. Something else that I think is super important is to really talk about how using the word profound or talking about intellectual disability, being minimally verbal, those things should not be stigmatizing. They're a different form of neurodivergence. They are. And so at some point, people decided there should be shame attached to that or stigma. We don't see it that way. We just see it as another form of neurodivergence that needs to be met where it is, supported, helped. And so that's the messaging that we're trying to just reiterate. We don't want to spend time fighting with people about who's more important. We want everybody to do well. Um, there was an article this last week in the Washington Post about the rift in the autism community over the term profound autism. Um, and the article itself I thought was kind of the typical, you know, here's what ASAN says, here's what, you know, other people are saying, kind of back and forth. What was really interesting to me were the hundreds of comments. Um, and I, I was honestly surprised that the vast majority of them really took the common sense approach saying we need to recognize this term we need to help these people um so i felt pretty heartened by that that people are recognizing autism is very different and there are unique challenges in that profound space that need to be addressed you know, the recognition is it's important i mean if you haven't been able to identify something it, give it give it language give it a term yeah, give it something how do you know how to make an action item around right. servicing it and yeah. I know that it's it can be painful for for some that are self advocates and want to be seen completely different, and they should be seen absolutely completely different if you can self advocate yeah. that way. Um, and I think that's that, and I've seen that as well. And I think there's a voice for everybody in the conversation, but it's trying not to tread on each other throughout that process. That sometimes is hard. Um, it is. Um, and I think, you know, you you nailed it. I'm just talking about clarity rather than competition. And it's interesting. We talk about self-advocates as this broad group, but really self-advocates can be so different. I hear from self-advocates who strongly support what we're doing, 
who repost things that we're posting. And then there's some self-advocates who really loathe what we're doing. Like that's normal. There's some parents who really don't like the term profound. They think it stigmatizes their kids. So there are different feelings about it and that's all okay. But like you were saying, I think the clarity is so important so we can get targeted research, targeted results, and power medical, behavioral, all sorts of providers, parents, families, the community to help people who have profound autism. Does that does that lead toward the the future goals of of what you're looking to be able to do? And you mentioned the medical side, but there's there's got to be more collaboration, more coordination of care, more education across the the medical practitioners, because a lot of people with profound autism, unfortunately, do have more medical needs and without coordination, it makes it nearly impossible. I mean, where are the goals that where's that driving you right now? So one of the first projects that we're funding just started in September at Profound Autism Alliance, and we're funding a program where we're going to be training neurologists and psychiatrists across the country to work with people with profound autism. It's going to be done working with Kristen Soule, who she chairs the American Academy of Pediatrics Autism Subcommittee, um, and Matt Siegel, who's a psychiatrist who really specializes in severe challenge and behavior. And they're gonna be working with a hub team that includes behavior analysts and other provider types. Um, And they're gonna have meetings twice a month to discuss cases. And so neurologists, psychiatrists can join these meetings to learn about what to do when you have a tongue biter come to you or whatever the particular case might be. But it's all about dissemination of information outside of Los Angeles and Boston and New York, you know, into all parts of the country. It's one of the biggest issues we hear right now are people and providers just having no place to turn. So there's emergency room boarding, you know, there's wait lists forever at the neurobehavioral units. There's only a handful of those. And even in those situations, after people leave neurobehavioral placements, What's the step down look like? How are they doing? So we really need to have psychiatrists, neurologists understanding how to meet families in crisis like this. And that, of course, is only the beginning. You know, behavior analysts need training. Like, and it's not just severe challenging behaviors. There's GI. There's all sorts of things, you know, that go on. So, but that's one of the first projects that we're funding. And we're, it's a three-year project, and we're super excited about it. As you should be. I mean, it's uh, a it's it's complicated. There isn't an mm-hmm. easy solution for all this, and that there's a multitude of people that are involved in every step of that. And yeah. the more that you can start the process of the education of being able to bring more people to a knowledge set that will enable them to do their jobs better, is yeah. that I couldn't imagine what the ramifications of you being successful on this might be to yeah. the rest of the, yeah. the industry. But um, yeah. so what what is your message right now? I mean, when when you're talking with people about, you know, the importance of stepping up right at this moment and starting to push this agenda a little bit more in front of, you know, decision makers, what is what is it that you want people to walk away with? So I would say We want people who live in the profound autism space, whether you're a provider, a caregiver, a sibling, um, someone like that, we want you to share your stories with members of Congress right now. 
Um, and you can very easily find a link to do that if you go to Profound Autism Alliance on Facebook or Instagram, TikTok, <laughs> um, on any of the social, LinkedIn as well. Um, we regularly share an action alert that's just recurring that just shares that story with members of Congress. So then that way, when I go and meet with members of Congress, they will have heard from constituents about their experiences. And it really lays a powerful foundation People in Congress aren't necessarily aware of the realities of their constituents. So that's a big thing. Um, and then we also have a conference that's coming up April 5th in Boston. Um, it's an all day conference that's going to be for parents, providers, community members. And the, the lineup is incredible. We have everyone from Greg Hanley to Nate Call to people focusing on safety, um, behavior, Kristen Soul speaking from the medical perspective. Um, we're gonna be talking about advocacy. So that is April 5th. Um, it's in person in Boston. It will be recorded. So you can, um, if you can't attend, um, you can um, view the recordings for a, a certain amount of time too. So um, just having a conference devoted to profound autism, I think is, super, super exciting. Yeah, I would imagine is that every provider, whether or not that is the specific population that they're working with right now, every provider would benefit from understanding and being able to understand the perspective of so many people that are trying to be able to educate around those subjects. Yeah. Um, Judith, I appreciate you coming on and sharing so much about what's happening and and where where the efforts need to be pushed forward? Um, how can how can folks make sure that they're keeping you know in touch and and yes. knowledgeable about what's coming next? Yeah, so I would say definitely right now follow us on social media on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, on LinkedIn. Our website we have a landing page right now. We've been really dedicated to making sure our website is what it should be for our community. So it's launching in January. I'm very excited about it. I think people are gonna be very excited about the resources that they find there. So sit tight, that's coming in just a few weeks. We've been working very hard on it, but in the meantime, please do connect with us on any of the social media platforms, just type Profound Autism Alliance in the search and you'll find us. Um, you can also email us at info at profoundautismalliance.org. Well, I know, for one, I appreciate all the work that you're doing, but I'm, I guarantee so many people are out there saying, thank goodness this exists and that the efforts are being put in. So I appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today. And hopefully yes. we can have you back on when, when we see more of what's yes. happening and the, the progress that you've made. I would absolutely so appreciate that opportunity. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.